0: from Two Keto LLC. It's the Obesity Code podcast with Dr. Jason Fung and Megan Ramos. Each week we bring you lessons and stories from the intensive dietary management program in Toronto, Canada. I'm Carl Franklin. And on the show today, live Q&A with Megan Ramos. The Obesity Code Podcast is brought to you by 2Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. Today's show is a Q&A session recorded live with myself and Richard Morris and answering your questions today, none other than Megan Ramos. Hi, Megan.
1: Hey, guys. How's it going?
0: pretty good. We're actually both in New London, which is awesome. Richard's here at KetoFest Central this week. Yeah. We have questions and answers today, Megan, and uh, let's start with some of yours. You uh, obviously get a lot of questions on social media, and sometimes they warrant sharing with the wider audience.
1: Well, I think one of the the biggest things that's coming up with the patients that I work with nowadays has a lot to do with social media. So this might not necessarily be a question, um, but it's about social media. And social media and all these fasting Facebook groups um, is becoming a really hot topic in my clinic. Mm. And it's becoming a hot topic in my clinic because nowadays everyone's trying to do these really long fasts. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with doing a long fast. Um, but everyone um, has sort of the mentality that if something is good for you, then a whole lot of it must be great for you. Right. So if uh, one day fast is awesome and can un- help you lose, you know, a pound of body fat and can knock your blood sugar levels down, yeah, then doing. Th- 10 days of fasting must be 10 times better for you. Right. And that's not necessarily the case. So when Jason and I first started IDM, uh, we had a lot of uh, scrutiny. Um, A lot of people are watching us in terms of our colleagues. So we just kept things to intermittent fasting just to play it safe. We couldn't hospitalize our patients. We had to only check in with them once a week. So we did the intermittent fasting, So one day on, one day off, one day on, one day off. And we just really preached at our patients about the importance of consistency. And within about six weeks, like all of our diabetic patients were off a diabetic medication, whether it was metformin or whether it was 110 units of insulin. Right. And and that was just from intermittent fasting, but just being consistent with it. So back in 2005, when Jason and I started IDM, fasting really wasn't that trendy. The ketogenic diet was starting to become more trendy. Low-carbohydrate diets in general were becoming very trendy, but not Fasting. Um, so fasting's really sort of taken the world over by storm. Even when I was in the States over the December holidays, there all of the morning um, talk shows were talking about time-restricted eating being right. the new diet of 2018. So it's become huge. <laughs> um, so eventually, Jason and I got into fasting some of our patients for prolonged periods of time, meaning seven days, 14 days, the odd time we would recommend a 21-day fast, and of course, we were heavily uh, monitoring these individuals. Oh, yeah. But uh, we it, it was about a year after we started IDM where we uh, asked anyone to do anything beyond a 36-hour fast. Hmm. Um, so we had a lot of success with intermittent fasting um, before we did the longer fast. And usually the longer fast, we only asked someone who is literally almost... Uh, at, at the end of their rope, um, in terms of if you don't get off your insulin now and get your blood sugar levels better now, you're going to lose your foot in two months. Yeah, And, uh, so more extreme cases. And then we had a lot of success with those patients. So then we started doing longer fasts with those who, it just seemed like the longer fast would fit better into their lifestyles. Um... But then social media, fasting became super trendy on social media. And now every time I go on to one of these Facebook groups, even our own Facebook groups, we have two Facebook groups and everyone's talking about seven day fasts and 10 day fasts, And a lot of people give our moderators flack on Facebook because we say you can only talk about seven-day fast. You can't talk about fasting beyond seven days. Huh. And a big reason for that is it's not necessarily a legal or a safety um, reason why we cap it is because we don't want to help fuel the fire that – because um, – or – we don't want to fuel the fire because if something is good for you, too much of it is bad for you. And that's the same thing with everything in life. Water is vital for our survival. Don't
2: drown in you it. You can drown <laughs> in it.
1: So too much yeah, of exactly. it is bad. Um, so we didn't want our patients to feel pressured because this is just society's mentality. So instead of the, the masses just trying to do... A few days of fasting, what fits into their lifestyle, the masses are gonna gravitate to trying to do more and more. More is always better in the North American mentality, anyways. I
2: think people tend to try and one up each other. You know, one person says I can do five days and the next person says, Well, I'm gonna try six days and it it sort of it escalates. And that
0: makes people feel bad who can't get beyond forty eight hours and maybe don't even need to.
1: So that's a big issue, and that's the exact issue that myself, as well as the rest of the IDM team is facing right now, is that doing seven-day fasts all the time just is not practical for not. people. I, I, can, I can finagle a seven-day fast about two to four times a year, you know, without it really infringing on my life. If I needed to for my survival, I absolutely would do it more often. But usually there's not that necessity to do it. And if people people that I work with, they're constantly putting pressure on themselves to try to do a seven-day fast, but they physically can't do it or they just socially can't really fit it into their lifestyle. So right. they never do it. They get to day one. They, something comes up, you know, maybe by day two, they don't feel well and the, that they call it quits and then they beat themselves up for three weeks before they try to fast again. And at the end of the year, they're fasting maybe two days a month after 12 months and they're, they've gotten absolutely nowhere at the end of the year because they keep trying to do these longer fasts. And it's really discouraging for them to go online and see these people who are are always doing these longer fasts. So we were talking a lot about this in clinic and just sort of reinforcing that it's, it's all about consistency and what you can do consistently. Jason and I have so many patients in clinic. They, these guys might see us every, every six to eight weeks and they don't do anything in those six to eight weeks except for the week before they see us. You know, it's like they look at the calendar and say, Oh no, I'm seeing those, those fasting guys <laughs> next week. Well, i better (laughs) fast until I I see them. And at the end of the year, they do like four, seven day fast, which is great. And, you know, their blood sugar levels might drop a bit. They might have lost a couple of pounds. But in a lot of the cases, that doesn't even happen. Their blood sugar levels stay the same or go up or they gain weight because they're not doing anything the rest of the year. You know, if you got 52 weeks of the year and you're only fasting four weeks of those Those 52 weeks, that's a whole lot of not doing anything. So consistency is important with the intermittent fasting and people need to do what works for them and what they can do consistently. And Jason and I have always been big on the, the number three, you know, through all of our experimentation when we first started idea. And we found three fasting days a week generated consistent success with people. Um, You know, most of our patients, again, doing it three days a week were off of their diabetic meds within about six to eight weeks.
0: And were those three days all in a row or 24 hours at a time? Or does it matter?
1: It doesn't matter, but three days, we found, has been a really good balance. So whether people want to fast Monday, Wednesdays, Fridays, or they want to do three days back to back, like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, it doesn't matter, but it still allows for a good fasting life balance.
2: That's the pattern Julie and I sort of settled on. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday was what we ended up doing, and we found that we could keep that up for quite a quite a good time, and, and both of us, it it, it, uh, it did remarkable things for.
1: I think it, doing it is uh, three days of the week is a really great balance between fasting enough to get the therapeutic benefits of fasting, mm-hmm. and still being able to live your life. Right. So fasting isn't infringing on your life too much, and it's just as important to eat as it is to fast. Right. It's just it's just important to eat well and. I'll, I feel like there are so many people out there on social media and they're just afraid to eat almost. And you shouldn't be afraid to eat.
0: So the takeaway is just stop stop consulting Dr. Facebook, right? <laughs>
1: uh, absolutely. Turn it
2: off. Do your own thing. Don't compare your uh, your mess backstage with everybody else's front of house. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Absolutely. We're talking to patients. Um, I had three in one group last week, and they were all in the same boat. And they said, you know, we don't want to, um, like, remove ourselves from these Facebook groups because there are – Things in there that do help us, or there are times where we're feeling stronger and we can handle seeing someone just complete a seven day fast. So I just told them you can turn off your notifications. Uh, I get added to so many groups. Jason and I discovered last week that we were, have both been added to like a low carb Bitcoin group. Like people, <laughs> add, <me> to, <laughs> people <laughs> add us to all these groups. Like Jason and was going through it and he said, do you know you're a member too? And I started to laugh and I said, no, I don't. (laughs) Um, so I, I turn off notifications for a lot of these groups, or I would get a thousand notifications every hour. Um, so that way, when I want to go into a group and focus on what's going on in that group, I actually can without being bombarded and and overwhelmed by the, what's going on. And so that I, I... I got an email actually today from one of the people I spoke to on Tuesday morning, and she said she turned off notifications, but this week when she was feeling confident about what she was doing, when she was feeling good about her fasting, she was able to check in with uh, the Facebook community online and get some information that she needed or some motivation to keep doing as well as she's been doing this week and to keep her motivated so it works so just simply turning off your notifications for these groups you don't have to leave the group you can just turn off your notifications um for these groups
0: well megan we've got a few more questions for you and richard's got one right now from the forum
2: so I've got a question from the Ketogenic Forum, and this uh, comes from a person asking, my question is regarding metabolism and fasting. If metabolism or BMR increases due to fasting, how long will this increase be maintained? Is it indefinite, barring any recurrence of bad eating habits, or just temporary? And if temporary, then how long can one expect their BMR to remain elevated? Great question.
1: That is a good question. Um... <laughs> Um, and I think we do need a little bit more, more data on that. But, um, from what we've s- seen in our clinic and from the research that's available out there, uh, as long as you maintain, um, good eating patterns and you don't revert to sort of old low calorie, you know, one sort of quick low fat meal a day, then you should be able to say, see the, um, basal metabolic rate maintain my basal metabolic rate. When I started fasting, um, was just below 800. Now it's just over 1200. Keep in mind, I'm, I'm five feet tall and I'm 110 pounds. So I'm, I'm, a small person. So that's pretty good. But to, the biggest issue that we see with people and even when I've seen my own dips in metabolic rate is when I'm just not eating enough on my eating days. Um so in order to be able to keep that boost in metabolic rate, um it's important to make sure that you're eating fat on your eating days. It's really easy to cut out the carbs, but it's not always very easy to sub in the fat and you need that fat because the fat's really calorie dense so you need to have that fat so the the biggest issue that people struggle with this is just not adding enough fat. I started making a rule for myself and for our patients. You know, most women I would ask them to take sort of somewhere between three to five tablespoons of fat, and men somewhere between about five to eight tablespoons of fat per meal. Yeah. So people had a target um, because it's really easy to eat vegetables and to eat a chicken thigh, but that alone mm. doesn't have enough fat in it. If you've got a, you got a handful of Roasted asparagus and you've got a couple of chicken thighs, it's not a tremendous amount of fat. You need to add butter, you need to add oil.
2: Throw some herb butter on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so keep the keep the fat high. And when we have we have some people who we constantly check their metabolic rate in. It's for those people who go down to one meal a day and get stuck there. That's where we don't see too much of an improvement in their metabolic rate. Um, so if you want to sort of boost your metabolic weight and continue to boost your metabolic rate, you have to do sort of true intermittent fasting or shorter bursts of fasts and occasionally do a longer period of fasting. Mm-hmm. But you need to keep your fat up. So we usually see the metabolic rate start to trend downwards when people start to go towards OMAD one meal a day and when they get really skimpy with the fat. And I usually, I'll, I'll get these patients results in... And before I see them, and one of the first questions I'll say, are you feeling satiated after you eat? And they say no. And the fasting is right. becoming more and more difficult. And then we, I ask them if they think they're eating enough fat. They almost always say no. And we talk about their diet and they're really not getting enough fat in. Yeah. So the most important thing to be able to maintain it is to fast consistently, vary your fasts and keep your fat intake high. <music>
0: Well, this is a follow-up question, and it happens to be right on the tails of this one, right? Uh, So if, um, well, let me just read the question. I would like to ask if it's correct that a fat fast gives exactly the same benefits to insulin levels as a water fast. The reason is after reading Dr. Fung's blog posts about incretin and protein intake, I went hunting for incretin response to pure fat intake and found this study, and we'll Post a link to it. It's called "Incretin and Islet Hormonal Responses to Fat and Protein Ingestion in Healthy Men." Caratal, 2008. Uh, This study found that there is an insulin response to a pure fat meal of low magnitude but prolonged duration, significantly different to the control group, which just drank water. I would like to hear your views on the study. Uh, Is the rise in insulin low enough to be irrelevant, or should we be concerned that pure fat intake, a fat fast, will be less effective in the reversal of insulin resistance than a water fast?
1: So we do have a lot of patients' fat fasts in our clinic, um, but we don't use the fat fast necessarily for for weight loss. We do see a reduction in people's blood sugar levels when they do a fat fast, um, but we don't get the same results in terms of lowering the sugar levels enough to start removing medications. Initially, we do, and then it sort of plateaus and levels off. Uh, So we use a fat fast in our clinic, uh, or in our program to help get people's appetite under control. Um, There's a few instances where we use a fat fast, but that's the primary one. Uh, Secondary one is to um, help replenish lost electrolytes after Mm. a period of carb loading. So on, say on Easter weekend, someone carb loaded and they sat on the scale and the scale went up 10 pounds. Well, there's no way they gained 10 pounds of fat in one weekend. Yeah. Yeah. 90% of that's water. So on Monday, if they were to fast after Easter Sunday, well, they're going to lose a ton of water. Mm. Even if they go low carb on Monday, they're going to lose a ton of water. When they're in a fasted state, if they're not effectively replenishing their electrolytes, which a lot of people are very poor at, so a lot of people forget that they should take salt or forget that they should take magnesium sure. when they fast, they can really feel like garbage. So we usually encourage our patients to avoid... Um, avoid fasting right off the bat after a period of bad eating or a day of really bad eating where they've retained a lot of water. So we'll have them do a fat fast on that day rather than a a water fast or a watered tea and coffee sort of fast. Right. Just so at least that they're going to be replenishing electrolytes um, and that's guaranteed with a a fat fast. The first time we ever used it in our clinic was with a 34-year-old male patient um, who I I'm assuming he was born, you know, with insulin resistance, like a a Pablum cornstarch fed baby from from the start. And uh, he came into our clinic and his sister's a doctor and she's the one that really pushed him to come. And he had been on insulin for type 2 diabetes since he was 21.
2: Wow. Wow.
1: And he's like, I I work like night shift at this factory. I'm surrounded by food. He says, honestly, my whole life, he's like, I've only eaten, you know, junk, uh, especially his whole adult life. And he's like, I've eaten every two hours. And uh, he was starting to go blind. He was starting to have kidney failure. Um, He had fatty liver. And he said, he was just so miserable. And so this guy, I had him do a fat fast because I was getting desperate. And I was like, yeah we'll just eat bacon eggs olives avocados Mm. we'll we'll just eat that and i said uh, my mentality was at that point i'm like well he's gonna drop his blood sugar level some we're gonna be able to take him off some of his insulin he'll lose some water weight hopefully those results will motivate him and propel him to want to fast and actually actually fast if i can get him to see some some short-term results maybe i can get him to fast so we can get some good long-term results but the next time I saw him in clinic, he was on day four of a, a fast, fast, like where he was just consuming yeah. water, tea and coffee and some chicken stock. And he said, I can't believe it. He's like, but I just, I was so full. So <laughs> yeah. fat is definitely the most satiating of the the macronutrients. Yeah. Uh, fat doesn't physically make your stomach ex- expand in order for your brain to receive the signal that you're becoming satiated. Mm-hmm. Right. Fat doesn't have that expansion property so when you eat protein when you eat carbohydrates you have to rely on your belly expanding in order to send a message to your brain that you're starting to fill up so to reduce the reduce the hunger Um, but fat doesn't have that so but fat it has a very quick quick response in terms of the when you digest it to, it's shooting a message to your brain saying hey shut off Megan's appetite she's getting she's she's getting lots and lots of energy lots and lots of food so s- turn it off now is that
0: a leptin response
1: <laughs> yes it is yeah so it's a very, very strong leptin response. So fat, um, we use fat fasting just to help boost people into fasting, fasting. We have some people um, with mild insulin resistance. You know, their hemoglobin A1Cs are like 5.6, 5.7. We know they're sort of entering into that clinically diagnosed borderline diabetic range, but they're already starting to experience diabetic kidney damage and they're having problems with their eyes and nerve pain. Um, so we see people in, in that realm, they're not too overweight, maybe 20, 30 extra pounds. And They might be leery of fasting, fasting, so we'll have them fat fast. And with those guys, their insulin resistance isn't that severe, so we get pretty good results. We can knock down their A1C to 5. We can get them to lose that 20 or 30 pounds of fat fasting. But for our patients with high high insulin resistance or severe insulin resistance, it takes pretty strict water fasting. Even people sometimes simply having a few cups of broth a day doesn't work at all they think that's enough protein it's enough fat to really halt someone's someone's progress so um for our more sick patients uh water fasting is is really what is going to do it or at least water tea coffee and and some s- soup stock or chicken stock or any sort of stock mm-hmm.
2: I have a, a question now f- uh, also from my ketogenic forum. This one is about keto rash. Um, and this question, is uh, a person is asking, is it a hormonal thing? I have a case of it around my eyes, so it's pretty difficult to hide it. I love being in ketosis, but this part sucks. I've had keto rash for around two months on my lower back. It's very itchy. However, it is consistently, very slowly dissipating. It's almost gone now. I'll be happy when it is. So the question really is, what is keto rash?
1: Well, keto rash. So it's sort of a, a reaction with your skin and the ketones that are being produced by the body. But I personally think it has a lot to do with yeast. Uh. Um, so this is how we started treating it in in our clinic. Um, we started treating people topically and with uh, raw and filtered apple cider vinegar, and we had them ingest it orally as well. And this seemed to eliminate like someone who I had this one woman. She had keto rash. She said for. a about two weeks it was almost unbearable Mm -hmm. she was ready to give up on fasting and on her low carbohydrate diet and she just cried and she wanted to go eat some french fries and put herself out of her misery
0: (laughs) oh that's terrible
1: so um so what we do with these patients is we have them take a cup of berries Mm -hmm. um raspberries strawberries blackberries um we tend to shy away from blueberries we have them take um
0: that's curious. Why?
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, blueberries have twice the amount of sugar per equal volume ah. compared to raspberries, strawberries, and blackberries. Okay,
2: that's good to you know. Um,
1: so they've got quite, they, they're not that bad, but they still have a lot more sugar than their other berry counterparts. So right. um, we increase their their sugar intake a little bit because just the, the shock to the body uh, from usually these people go from very high-carb to ketogenic almost overnight, mm. and that's where we see the most cases of this keto- Mm-hmm.
2: Um
1: and we have them take six tablespoons of raw unfiltered filtered apple cider vinegar diluted in water throughout the day not all at once but you know two tablespoons at a time three times a day and we'll have them dilute raw and filtered apple cider vinegar um, with water, equal parts, and then put that on the rash topically once or twice a day. Usually within three days, it's completely gone. Wow! We have them keep up one cup of berries for one week, and then we <laughs> cut it back to half a cup of berries for one week, and then we ask them to just eliminate the berries on the third week. <laughs> and it works every time. Um, so I think the, the raw and filtered apple cider vinegar, I mean, that that's uh, that just eradicates all of the candida in the gut. It's kind
0: of magic, isn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah. So we think it really helps with that, uh, killing off candida that might be causing sort of the the irritation in combination with the ketones.
0: Mm. Okay, I have another one. This is also from the Ketogenic Forums. Uh, And this person says, I prefer the results I get from extended fasts, you know, five days or more. So that's what I do. But I'm also very concerned about the potential for refeeding syndrome, which is the sudden relocation of phosphorus in the body when you resume eating. I've been 100% keto since the last week of May 2017. And I'm an experienced EFR. Extended faster. Because of my concern I had to wait <laughs> it took me a second. E okay. effer. Effer effer effer. Because of my concern about refeeding syndrome, I have always eaten a very small amount of high phosphorus food every five to seven days of an extended fast, hoping to gently restore phosphorus and maybe avoid the great bodily shock of refeeding syndrome when I finally end it. I take in proper amounts of sea salt, potassium, and magnesium every day, whether I'm fasting or not. I should also mention that I'm recovering from a massive and near-fatal stroke from December 2016 before keto, so I try to avoid any kind of major shocks to my system, and I really like the potential healing effects of extended fasting. My question is, does it help to actually eat this small amount of high-phosphorus food every few days of an extended fast? Or does it just result in throwing me out of my fast every few days and have no effect on mitigating any potential refeeding syndrome? Thanks so much for everything that you do.
1: Well, refeeding syndromes, uh, it was a hot topic for me in March, um, after Breckenridge. Yes, it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a theme of Breckenridge. Uh, really, um, refeeding syndrome is something that only people who are, are quite malnourished need to be concerned about. Also, for people who are doing tremendously long, extended fasts. But even mm. then, um, oh, what is his name? I don't know why I'm forgetting his name right now. That, Crazy guy who fasted for over three hundred. Angus Barbieri. Angus
0: Barbieri. Yeah.
1: There he goes. I'm, I'm brain dead at this time of night. Um, <laughs> he like he had vitamin infusions periodically, but his phosphorus levels stayed incredibly stable. Yeah. His phosphorus, his calcium, his magnesium, everything stayed stayed very stable. Um, and he was not a malnourished guy. That's right. for sure. He might
2: um, he might have just been an outlier. You know, that's the thing. He could have been. I mean, he's the only guy who we've got records for fasting for that long. It's true. Yeah, according to the story, he took
0: supplements that provided potassium, sodium, and yeast and only drank non-caloric fluids, water, coffee, and tea.
1: So people who are at risk um, for refeeding syndrome – it is possible to have a certain conditions, um, that throw off your, your phosphorus levels. So things like kidney disease can have a dramatic impact on your phosphorus levels, either too high or too low. So it's good to make sure you have a baseline lab assessment done to see if there's eneral- any minerals. That you are deficient in to start with. Um, all these minerals like to be in balance, calcium, phosphorus, magnesium. So if one of them goes out the window, the other ones start to start to act up and right. not be quite in balance. So it's always good to have baseline blood work done to make sure that you're not at high risk before you start fasting. Um, in terms of wanting to be extra cautious and prevent refeeding syndrome, uh, you know, usually people who, um, have excess body fat and who do eat well when they do eat and they're not fasting for weeks on end, usually they're not at high risk for refeeding syndrome. If there's no reason why their minerals are thrown off, like they don't have kidney disease or their kidney disease isn't interfering with their phosphorus levels yet anyways. Um, but we do recommend to some of our patients patients who do have issues with with phosphorus levels or other important Uh, minerals, calcium and uh, magnesium, we do recommend that they take broth. Now They don't have to drink an excessive amount of broth, but taking something like chicken broth, uh, chicken bone broth um, every day, one cup of it every day during their fast or every couple of days. And usually that is what I would recommend to be a good alternative to uh, rather than breaking your fast and taking a, a meal rich in high phosphorus foods and then getting back on your fast Mm. if you find that extended fasting is something that you can keep up with on a more consistent basis and gets you the results that you want and it's just easier for you to do i would have, you know, a cup of bone broth every day or a couple of cups of bone broth every two or three days throughout the extended fast to make sure you're getting in all the phosphorus, calcium, magnesium um, that you need to help prevent refeeding syndrome.
2: Yeah. How, how about uh, the first meal back uh, after a fast? What what would you recommend for to minimize the chance of uh, refeeding syndrome?
1: So for the first meal after the fast, it's important not to put sort of too much of a, of a load on the body. Hmm. Um, we have our patients usually break their fast, uh, with a cup of water, with a tablespoon or two of chia seeds or psyllium husk. Chia
0: seeds. Chia
1: seeds or psyllium husk. So if you break your fast at 5 p.m. at 4.30, uh, so half an hour before, take a cup of water, about 8 to 16 ounces of water, mix in one to two tablespoons of either the chia seeds or the psyllium husk, let it sit for 30 minutes, and then drink that at 5 o'clock to break your fast. Is that just
0: to get something non-nutritional and bulky in your stomach?
1: Yes, it is, and yeah. it will also, though, kickstart digestive juices flowing, okay, um, and uh, get your digestive system revved up again after a period of being slightly dormant for a few days.
0: I heard a handful of nuts was good too. Is that is psyllium
1: husk better than nuts? psyllium has is better than nuts so jason and i um we this is a a bad edit that made it through through the complete guide to fasting it was supposed to be what not to break your fast with is nuts um and it got put into what to break your fast with um most people get extremely nauseous nuts are Hmm. terribly difficult on their digest on anyone's digestive system to break down um but most people want to gravitate towards nuts because most of the are very high in phosphorus so people who are very concerned about refeeding syndrome they're like well you know i'll get this i'll get this phosphorus load with this handful of almonds but Mm. then their body can't digest it because the digestive juices aren't there and they end up causing nausea um Mm. extreme nausea um so we usually ask for people to hold off for nuts for the first 12 hours after they've broken an extended fast interesting most people who do intermittent fasting don't need to be too concerned, but for extended fasts, it's just, it's too tough on your digestive tract. The one sort of substitution that you could make, um, if you wanted to break your fast with nuts is to have sprouted nuts. They're much easier on your digestive system to digest.
2: So, so basically growing them in a, in a, in a jar with a bit of water, uh, till they have sprouts coming out of them.
1: Yes, yes. So if you were really wanted to get a hit of phosphorus right away,
2: yeah. um,
1: then sprout your nuts before. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but if you if you think that you're gonna get that, um, uh, and that I think we have a show phosphorus.
2: title. <laughs>
1: <laughs> sprout your nuts exactly. Uh, <laughs> but you don't you. It, if you just take the handful of almonds or walnuts, chances are you're going to throw it up. So, so much for all that phosphorus. Yeah. So, gently wake up your digestive system about half an hour, 15 minutes to 30 minutes after you drink the the fiber in the water, then having a salad with a little bit of olive oil on it. We usually ask, too, that people shy away from MCT oil and coconut oh, oil. Oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> That's just for asking the for it. Day. It asking is. It. So,
1: yeah. Everything you put in is going to go out, mm. and you want your body to... Try Try to retain as many of those vital nutrients like phosphorus when you start eating again. So you want to do it slow and gradually.
0: Well, here's another one from the ketogenic forums. I've heard uh, how you should test blood, not urine or breath for ketones. The common issue I hear on the urine ketone testing is that it becomes inaccurate after you've been in keto for a few weeks. But what if it doesn't? I started keto about six weeks ago, and during that time, I've been testing urine ketones mostly daily or every other day in the early evening, about 6 p.m., um... At the end of the first week, they were up in the dark purple range, labeled as 80 to 160 milligrams per deciliter. Since then, they have consistently been in the pink or light purple range, which is 15 to 40. Why haven't mine disappeared? Am I not keto fat adapting properly? Is my body not using ketones efficiently?
1: So what my clinical experience with this is, and my personal experience with this is, um, when I was actively trying to lose body fat and and had a surplus of it uh, to burn, and I was doing quite intensive fasting um, and being really strict with my keto diet, I started off with next to no blood ketones and dark, dark, super purple urine stick readings um, for my keto six, and eventually over time, I transitioned into high blood ketone readings. Um, but I would read low on the keto six when I checked my urine. But it would never be negative. And once I got to the point where I stopped burning body fat, and I was sort of trying to maintain my weights, and um, I would I would be fasting and not burning body fat. I, I would fast for the growth hormone production to build bone and to put on lean muscle mass, um, but I wasn't fasting to necessarily burn body fat. That's when I found that my urine ketones went to nothing. So when I'm working with a patient too, and we're trying to figure out, you know, sort of their sweet spots for everything, Mm -hmm. um, if they have high blood ketones and no urine ketones, but they have a surplus of body fat, um, if they're usually not losing a whole lot of body fat with whatever they're doing in terms of their diet. Maybe they're taking um, way, way, way too much fat. So they're just eating fat for the heck of it, even when they're not hungry. Yeah,
2: way past satiation.
1: Yeah, maybe they're not fasting enough. But usually I find the the sort of sweet spot for body when you're actually losing body fat is you, you still well have some ketone output in your urine. Just because you're losing body fat, you're burning through so much, you're producing through so much ketones that at a cellular level, you don't need that many ketones, so you're wasting them through your urine. That's sort of the, the hypothesis that we have at, at IDM.
0: Richard, is acetoacetate one of the first uh, ketone bodies that you uh, produce
2: when you go into ketosis? it's actually uh, the first ketone body that we make in the process of uh, of uh, spilling fat um that we can't use we we make acetoacetate and then we turn that into beta hydroxybutyrate to make it shelf stable because acetoacetate naturally um uh, degrades into acetone which we can't use for energy it's no longer a ketone body as such that we can use for energy we really just outgas it
0: so ultimately, this is what happens. You, you measure less acetoacetate with the urine strips and more beta-hydroxybutyrate that's floating in your bloodstream with a blood ketone meter.
2: Yes, I think that would make sense. So uh, the last question, Megan, is about one meal a day. Uh, which is a common pattern. It's something I've sort of fallen into. And the question really is, why does it work for some people and not for others?
1: Well, so there's uh, a lot of these guys that post about their one meal a day online. Um, I work with a lot of them. They're, they're patients <laughs> in the IDM program. Yeah. And they fit. The, we have two typical patient profiles uh, in in our program. We have the patient profile of a person who's never really tried to lose weight. They've never cared that they've been overweight, not at all, their entire life. It's never stopped them from going to supersize their french fries mm. or supersize their, their soda drinks. They just haven't cared. They, they're they proud to love every inch of their being, and, um, and they're happy with that. But then as they get older, they start to experience complications of their obesity. They start to develop things like diabetes. They require insulin injections people start talking about them having to have bypass surgery, all these very scary terms um, that they don't want to have to deal with. Right. So if they have to lose weight, then they're happy to lose weight. So these people are, they've been overweight for a long period of time. They're eating tons of food all of the time and they have their bodies are trying to shed that weight. So they have these really high basal metabolic rates because their body's actively trying to lose weight and these people are just sort of out eating their their body they just keep going and going and going for more food right so these guys when they start fasting and they get into a one meal a day cycle they have very very high metabolic rates they have dangerously high metabolic rates almost and uh, the their metabolic rates so high and and trying to lose that weight so much it's it's burning out their metabolic processes it's it's increasing their aging because it's running so high to lose this weight. So for these people, they actually want to see their metabolic rate come down because they, they don't want to burn out their bodies. They, you, you don't want to have a really low metabolic rate, but you don't want to have a really high metabolic rate either. It's not good for longevity. You want to preserve your metabolic processes. Yeah.
2: yeah so what would be a high metabolic rate?
1: Well, it depends if you're male or female and, and your body size and, and structure. Like I'm, I'm five feet tall and 110 pounds. My metabolic rate's about... Twelve
2: hundred. Mine's about twenty nine hundred.
1: Yeah, but there there are people out there with metabolic rates like well over four thousand or five thousand <gasps> because wow. they're so obese.
0: How how does one measure that?
1: So uh <laughs> there are you can go to a physiology lab um in Toronto at various metabolic clinics in Toronto, not at our clinic but we can refer patients to them um they have these fancy physiological devices and they hook a bunch of electrodes up to you and you have to be in a fasted state to to have this assessed and you lie there and and they hook you up with all these electrodes and it it generates um, metabolic rate so the easiest way to have um, your meta- your wrestling metabolic rate tested anyways is to have a DEXA scan done. They, they cost anywhere from 60 to about $120, huh. and they can give you your wrestling metabolic rate in about 30 seconds from just lying there. I'm not quite sure how they do it.
2: Wow, but. that's incredible. I think they guessed from how much uh, lean mass you have and how much uh, fat mass you have and it's a, it's a, it's a, there's a formula involved. I know that you can, you can do a gas exchange and you can, you can determine not only where somebody's getting their energy from, but, but what their metabolic rate is and how efficient their mitochondria are. Is that the respiratory quotient? Well, the respiratory equation tells you what what people are using for energy, but then how much oxygen they breathe in, and then how much they breathe out mm. determines how well their mitochondria are working. And that mm. that's how they worked out my my uh, metabolic rate, which is twenty nine hundred. I'm only so I mean I've got eighty kilograms of lean mass, so mm. I'm I'm generating a lot of using a lot of energy. But I thought that was quite a high metabolic rate, but four thousand is just incredible. That's insane. Yeah, that's
1: where you see people at. Um... That have like a, sur- a surplus like they're 400, 500 pounds. So there are people with very, mm. very high metabolic rates.
0: Well, Megan, thank you very much for spending this time with us and answering these questions. Um, and I'm sorry Dr. Fun couldn't be here with you, but uh, he's a very busy guy, but we'll we'll have you both on very soon, I'm sure.
1: Sounds good. We'll take care, guys. And Thanks, happy me. feasting and happy fasting. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely.
0: Thanks, Megan. And that's our show for this week. You've been listening to the Obesity Code Podcast, lessons and stories from the Intensive Dietary Management Program. The Obesity Code Podcast is brought to you by 2Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And you can support our mission by making a monthly pledge, no matter how small, at patreon.2keto.com. I'm Carl Franklin. We'll see you next time.